You're listening to Authorpreneurs Unleashed with host Catherine McClatchy, demystifying the business of writing. Wondering what it takes to conquer several genres and build a successful writing career? Catherine called on someone who is doing just that. Tosca Lee is a New York Times bestselling author of 12 novels, including The Line Between, The Progeny, The Legend of Sheba, and Iscariot. Lee's work has been praised across genres as diverse as historical fiction, Christian suspense, dystopian, medical thriller, and epic fantasy. You won't want to miss this episode where we unleash the strategies of a multi-genre author and get inspired to apply Tosca's writing strategies to our own writing and marketing process. Hey, entrepreneurs! I am here today with my friend Tosca Lee best-selling author in so many genres that we're going to get to. And when I was planning this month about marketing strategy and writing strategy, she was the first one I thought of because we had the chance to meet at BoucherCon and she handed me a goodie bag. And this was the best marketing thing ever. And it's been, what, (laughs) three years now? And I'm still going nuts over this goodie bag. So we are going to talk about that in depth. But welcome, Tosca Lee. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you today. We're going to have a fun conversation. So, Tosca, let's talk about your writing to start with, because our audience is full of authors and aspiring authors and people that are looking to level up. How long have you been writing? Oh, gosh. Okay, so I started writing at a very young age. I just never really was focused about it. I never, you know, was trying to do anything with it because... I loved writing and I loved storytelling, but I wanted to be a professional ballerina. That was my whole early goal in life until I got injured as a teenager. And, you know, you have to be very good at a young age and losing a whole year kind of sets you back. So I went off Mm -hmm. to college and it was my freshman year in college that I came home for spring break. And that was that was the thing that changed my life because I was in the car with my dad. And I was talking about some of my favorite novels and how a great novel is like a roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. And I I blurted out that day, I think I'd like to write a novel because I wanted to see if I could make a roller coaster ride for somebody else to enjoy the way I had enjoyed my favorite books. So it wasn't until I was 18 that I wanted to do it like really seriously. And I, I wrote my first novel the following summer when I was 19. So it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. And and you actually went to college for this, right? You've got a degree in English and, and journalism. Is that correct? Yeah, they didn't have a lot for um, creative writing. I went to Smith College in Massachusetts and it was a it's a humanities you know, college, mm-hmm. very humanities, strong uh, liberal arts. And um, there was only one class on creative writing. It was short stories. And I got like a B minus and I had to like go to bat to get that B minus because she was giving me a C plus. So apparently I was not like great material back then. So, <laughs> you know, that's so funny because I, I was a business major and I took English classes to keep my GPA up because the, oh. the, the business classes were hard, but the English yeah. came easy to me and were fun <laughs> and I enjoyed it, but there was never a creative writing class in any yeah. of the universities I went to. And it wasn't until I was working on my master's in English and I was already teaching college courses that I had a professor go, you've never had 
a creative writing class? And I'm like, no. And he said, okay, next assignment. He made the whole class write short stories. And oh. I was, I was terrified. I put more effort into that short story and, and he didn't grade any of them. He, the note on my paper was, well, this was fun. Let's go back to your work. <laughs> And then it's hard to know how to take that. Like, this is fun. Like, right, right. What, what does that mean? What does that mean? And then when I got involved in the writing community and I thought, oh, I might want to do this. It's a whole different part of the brain that does creative oh. writing versus, you know, the, the English language arts that we're all familiar with. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's very true. Very true. Too fun. Okay. So what are your, now that you've been doing this a while, and in case my listeners aren't familiar, Tusk has had over 10 books in the last 13 years, most of them bestsellers, all of them bestsellers. And um, we're, we're going to talk about that more in depth, but obviously you do this like a job. So yeah. what's, what's your favorite part and your least favorite part of the writing process? <laughs> I, okay. I'm a little different than a lot of my friends. A lot of my friends love writing the first draft. Mm -hmm. I love writing a first draft when it's really flowing and it's you're in the moment and the time flies by. And that happens to me about 1% of the time. So, oh, that makes me feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time I, I feel like I'm pulling my fingernails out with pliers and I, you know, I'm trying to get a scene written or whatever and it comes out and it's just ugly, like bad. <laughs> So my favorite part is when I have something to work with. So when I have the first draft and I can go in, I, I really like picking. So mm -hmm. as you know, I have OCD too. I use that to go in and, and pick um, at stuff, which makes me very happy. Okay. <laughs> so, so, and when I say I have OCD too, I mean two on top of other things that I have, not two, meaning that you have it. <laughs> so. No, no, I get it. And uh, for our listeners, Tosca and I were on a panel at BoucherCon talking about disabilities and getting more authors to write characters with disabilities, both visible and invisible. My disabilities yeah. are invisible. Your disabilities are invisible. But it's interesting how we've learned to compensate and actually use those things to our advantage. And I'm seeing this in the neurodivergent community as well. There's some amazing things that, that folks do once they go, oh, this is how my brain operates. I think that's really important because whatever it is that you have, whether, you know, it's a disability, whether it's, you know, a certain gift or talent or whatever, all of that stuff informs your unique perspective on the world. And I think that when we figure out how it works and we can harness it, then it becomes a superpower. Right. And so I'm all about harnessing superpowers. Exactly. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that say, oh, I have a healthy touch of OCD or whatever. So we're talking about an actual clinically diagnosed clinically OCD. diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's, we're not joking about it. It's, it's a no, real thing. This is like, you know, sometimes it, it, when mine gets really out of hand, I have to take medication. So, you know, sometimes I can slide by without it, but clinically diagnosed. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes debilitating. Yeah. And I love I'm jumping ahead in what we had planned to talk about. So okay. um, because you opened the door. So your character Winter in A oh. Line Between and A Single Light, she lived with OCD. And did that mirror your experience or did it just uh, use your experience to build that character? I'm kind of curious which yeah. came first. Um, I used my experience to build her experience, which is a mirror of my own. 
So okay. the part of OCD that a lot of people don't know about is it's, it's not just hand washing. It's not just rituals. It's not just that you're a neatness fanatic. And, you know, OCD is very specific uh, to different people. So it it's manifests completely different from person to person. But one part that people often don't know about is that it involves intrusive thoughts, intrusive thinking. This is like a very common intrusive thought is, you know, you get home and you're like, did I run over somebody on the way home? Which to somebody else would be like, of course you didn't. You would know you, but there's that Mm -hmm. intrusive thought and now it won't go away. So there's a, a scene in a single light when winter is, is totally just being beset with intrusive thoughts especially after some triggering things that have happened to her. And when you are running through these intrusive thoughts over and over and over, it's very debilitating. It's, um, and it's very tiring. It's, it's very draining. Listeners, if you have not read these two books, I'm now <laughs> suggesting it because I read it right before oh. the pandemic and oh my goodness, it hit way too close to home. But but talking about you wanting to do a roller coaster ride, those two books, it's it's a two book series, which I noticed you've done a couple other times, but this two book series takes you on a roller coaster ride and there's so many levels and so many layers and so many amazing oh, deep characters. I just it's a brilliant book. So, uh, okay. So that opens into, you mentioned rituals. So what rituals do you have about writing? Cause we talk about authors, you know, have to be in a certain place, listen to a certain music, whatever. So is that um, part of the author journey or is that an OCD thing or a combination? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, it could be a combination. It could be. Um, so here's, here's my rituals. I don't like to go work if the okay. kitchen's a mess. The kitchen is downstairs. It is away from my office, but I know if there's crumbs on the counter. <laughs> so, so I get up and I clean the kitchen. I clean the counters. And I often like to have, I love soups. I like, I love to make soups. And so I often love to have something bubbling away in the crock pot or on the stove. That's very comforting to me any time of year, not just winter. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Is that OCD? Is it? I, I don't know. And then the only other ritual is that I pray before I before I work, um, especially when I'm drafting. So I pray beside my desk and it's just a short prayer. It's just begging. (laughs) It's please, God, please help me to do a good job. And then I get up and then I go start and that's, that's it. (laughs) I I love that. I think I need to adopt your ritual. Yeah. My crock pot is actually in the sink right now soaking because I did that Mm -hmm. yesterday and, uh, oh, Love Crock-Pot. I actually put that as my Instagram story. This is a productivity hack. Double your recipe, put a Crock-Pot on it, and you're good to go for yes, two days. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So let's dive into the writing strategy okay. part. Um, I'm, I'm really fascinated. Part of my grad school program was looking at uh, writing process and composition process. So I'd love to deep dive here. Um, do you consider yourself a pantser or a plotter? How much do you know about your story before you start drafting? Yeah, so I am a plotter, but I am not a detailed plotter. My plot is a list of events that are going to happen. Okay. I like to adhere to a three-act structure. So I try to keep it to the three-act structure where, you know, I know that there's going to be an inciting event, you know, near the beginning. And then, you know, so I'm, I'm keeping it to that. But I like to leave room because there's always something weird that comes up or happens or 
Um, for instance, in a single light, I knew that I needed this other character to come into the picture and join Winter and her friend Chase in helping them achieve a goal. What I didn't know is who that person would be. He turned out to be one of my favorite characters I've ever written, a guy named Otto, neurodivergent. He does not speak, but he's really funny. And and for some reason, somehow, it was just, I had a ball writing this character who, who didn't speak, but had this wicked sense of humor. So he was a lot of fun. And I so I didn't know he would show up that way. I did not plan to have this character who was different in this way, but I just adored my time with him. You had a lot of deep characters. In, in that story. So we're going to come back to that. Okay, okay. So, so you have a general outline. Um, let's talk about your writing practice then. Once you have that outline in place, are you a morning writer? Are you a night owl? Are you uh, one that writes when inspiration strikes? Or are you at your desk every morning at a certain time? How, how does that look for you? Well, I'm not a very disciplined person. And I, I have tried to create and keep routines before, and it's never lasted longer than a day. And, you know, because every day is, is different there, you know, might be things or, you know, six, seven years now ago, I married and a single father and acquired kids. And so, and a farm, never know. And, and, a, and a farm. So <laughs> this a single city girl became a farm wife and mother of four. <laughs> so, you know, I have goals for the day, whether I'm going to meet those goals or not, I don't know. I used to write it a lot at night and into the wee hours. And it, it wouldn't be unusual even a few years ago for me to be going downstairs to go to bed when my husband was waking up to go to work. But that's a little harder after turning 50, 51, 52, 53. So it's becoming a little harder for me now. So I try to make good use of my alert morning time. Okay. I've never been a morning person. Um, but, you know, things change, I guess. So. So thank you, menopause. <laughs> it's not been my favorite, but you know. <laughs> I was thrown into that at 26 years old. So I, uh -huh. uh, I, I had the menopause attitude in my 20s. Uh -huh. But here's the thing. I'm now an empty nester. And I remember waiting all those years going, once the kids are gone, I'll be able to control my time. Yeah, no, it doesn't work <laughs> way at all. I think I got more done when I had a house full and I had to plan, you know, around and it. And you knew you had to get things done by a certain right. time. Yeah. Knowing that my time is my own has not been my friend. <laughs> good, good point. Okay. So <laughs> how do you come up with the, the topics? Because you write on a broad range. I was looking at your Amazon page and I went through to check. I wanted to see which books ranked. Well, they're all ranked, but they're all ranked in different things. You've got Christian <laughs> mystery. You've got suspense. You've got um, dystopian. You've got historical fiction. You've really covered the gamut. So do you just go with inspiration or was that an intentional choice? Yeah, you know, um, my very first novels that are not published were fantasy, not like high fantasy, but they were kind of fantasy novels. And I always really liked that. And then I started writing the story of a fallen angel uh, telling his life story. And that became my first published novel. And that was Demon, a memoir. You know, then they were like, well, what else have you got? Well, somewhere along the way, it took me six years to finally find an agent and get published. Um, along the way, I started drafting just the first page of this prologue of a very old Eve about to tell her story. 
how about the story of Eve? And I literally had just one page and I was like, I have this. And they said, we'll take it. So, you know, really? it kind of fell into these things, you know, and uh, after that, they said uh, they wanted three books. And I said, I don't have a third book. And they said, you'll think of something. And eventually they said, why don't you write about uh, Judas Iscariot? And I said, no way. <laughs> and then I ended up doing it. And then I did Queen of Sheba. But after that, I was like, you know, biblical historical is really tough stuff. I mean, you have to check so many boxes and you have to I wanted to do something modern where I didn't have to research what people wore or ate every single day. You know, I I wanted to do something where the, the clock is ticking. And so I switched it up. And in between, I wrote some uh, like allegory type stuff with Ted Decker. Um, but, you know, I always say it's it's like I don't want to eat sushi every day. I don't want to eat a hamburger every day. You know, I don't want to read the same thing every day. And as you know, when you write a book, you're devoting at least however many months, if not, you know, I've, I've spent five years on books before. Mm -hmm. And um, you better like that story. <laughs> so I don't want to get locked into something where I'm going to, you know, really not have a good time the whole time. So. That makes perfect sense. So, okay, yeah. you've and, and your new book that's about to come out shifted gears again because it's a World <laughs> War II story. Yeah. Yeah. My agent does not like me doing that. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, I shifted gears again. It's, but that's different. It's because a friend of mine who's well known for his World War II nonfiction mm -hmm. uh, said, Hey, I've got this back burner project. It's a novel. Um, you know, I feel like I need, you know, another voice in here. Do you want to come in and, and jump in, you know, to the story with me? And he had been working on that book for seven years. And then I entered the picture and started working on that book for five years. So that book, which is the Long March Home over here, that's about to come out. That's a 12 year book. For whenever listeners are listening, that will be released May, 2023. Yes. Yeah. That's 12 years in the making. And, you know, World War II was not in my wheelhouse before. So, you know, a lot of research, but it was, it was fascinating. Uh, I learned a lot and um, I really enjoyed the story. Okay, let's talk about how um, writing is different when you're writing your own project, because you've had a lot of solo titles, but then you've also had titles with Dead Decker and now with Marcus Brotherton. So how does that change your process for writing and, and your strategy? Do you lay out, you know, we have to get together on certain days? Do we write together or separately? What does that look like? Yeah. You know, when I wrote with Ted, we came up with the concept together and then we built that concept out and world built together. And then we started, you know, chunking out the outline. So that process was very different than when Marcus called me up and said, Hey, and he had a draft started already, you know, and, and he had already gone through several iterations of this draft. And so he started just handing over everything he had. So for five years, you know, I'm working on this and I added some stuff in there and we never met until last October for the very first time. Oh, really? Yeah. And we had talked on the phone, but um, I think our very first Zoom where like I saw his face move, <laughs> you know, that yeah, like was yeah. not like a static picture um, was with our publisher after they picked up the book and we had a call with the whole publishing team and I was like, huh. He's real. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like,
like, you guys have never Zoomed before? And I'm like, no, no, I wasn't sure if he was a bot or not. <laughs> I was like, you don't know. That's fabulous. So, so you, crazy, you right? had a relationship with Ted Decker before you started writing with him. But yes, this... I've seen him, met him. I've been to his stuff and, and, you know, our agents had done all the negotiating up front. But when I started writing with Marcus, we had no publisher, no, no, nothing, you know? So. <laughs> wow. So, so what I'm hearing is the process and the strategy is as different as the people involved and the project you're working on. Absolutely. And I, I can tell you that even writing with Ted from book one to book two to book three, the process changed from each book too. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. It wasn't the same. Is that so, because the books were different or your stages of life were different or you learned and yeah. improved the process? How, how did that well, happen? I think as you adjust to working together, you know, the process can can change. So, you know, in the in the first book, I'd take the first run at, at most of the first draft, which, as you know, is not my favorite. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, so and then in the second book, we were both drafting. And in the third book, he started taking the first run at most of the drafts. So and the other person would rewrite. So we'd rewrite and pass it back and forth. And with the first book, Forbidden, I don't know how many times we re rewrote each other just because we were trying to get a single voice, but it could have been 20 or more oh. that we rewrote over one another on that book. So yeah. Yeah. By the third book, you know, we had the voice down. We wrote it in probably two months. It was. That's amazing. Yeah. It was insane. Yeah. But the first book took forever. It took way longer than it would have taken to write a book by ourselves. You know, because you were figuring so. out each other's work style and strengths and weaknesses yeah. and how to compensate, I'm sure. That's a big commitment that you take on when you're working with somebody else. And I know when I'm working where somebody else is waiting on me for the next step, that's its own stressor. So yeah. how do you make that work in your daily life and with the OCD and all the things? Did that require yeah. an extra level of flexibility and grace or did you find that that actually helped you focus and get it done? Well, I, I've been blessed most of my life and this could be changing a little bit now these days, but I've been blessed most of my life with a very keen sense of focus. Mm. So once I dig into something, you know, I don't multitask well. So I know that when I start a book that I'm going to start dropping balls everywhere else, you know, I, I will forget to pay bills, I'll forget my my inbox will explode, and I won't get back to anybody. And because I, I can only do one thing well. So there's that when I wrote with Ted, you know, he, he's a man who had kids still at home. So he was working during the day. And I was writing at night. So you know, I'd write my stuff and he'd be reading it in the morning. And then I'd resurrect around noon. And, you know, then we could talk about the stuff. Um, with Marcus, you know, Marcus is one of the most open-handed, generous, you know, authors as far as authors go, because he basically said, here you go, take a run at it. <laughs> you know, and I was, and he might not hear from me for months. We didn't know if we would end up with something that was going to be wanted or get picked up or, you know, what? I mean, we hoped so. Um, we both have good track records, but we didn't know. And there was a time it was like, well, I don't know. Do we put this on the back shelf? Do we, um, was this just a great learning experience? And I, I remember thinking, we've put so many years into this. No, that's, we're not going to do it. We're going to find a home for this. And luckily, you know, we, we just, we just got a beautiful starred review from Publishers Weekly and a beautiful starred review from Booklist. And I told Marcus now, if Kirkus likes this, because they normally hate me, if Kirkus likes this, put your white robe on because <laughs> the end is near. <laughs> 
Wow. <laughs> I'm just processing. You put five years into this project that he had already been collecting research on for however many years before that. And you still released two books during that time. So was <laughs> the single light and line between, was that already written and just in the publication stage or were you juggling both projects? I was finishing um, up the line between and then I, I think I was writing and finishing a single light because I, I still had those two projects in the queue and that was slowing things down for me. And one thing that really slowed things down is I did something that I preach against when I teach writing. And that is, you know, I always say honor the way you work. And I am a plotter and I know that, but I approach the line between thinking, well, I've done this so many times, surely it's innate by now. Mm -hmm. I did not outline the thing was a mess. So I had to go and rewrite the whole thing. It delayed publication of that book. Uh um, I had to pull all the wires out and then I had no respite in between that book and a single light because it was time to go straight into a single light. And my confidence was low. I was not in a good place. Finally got all that back up and, and moving again, but it, it kind of put, set everything back a little bit. So I was still finishing those books and, you know, you can, you work on one thing, right. But you still like at night mm -hmm. or whatever, you're still kind of noodling around with something back here a little bit when you lay down or you see it on your desk. And so, you know, it's, that's still going on a little bit, but I was able to finally turn my attention to it right before the, the pandemic. And then during lockdown, I just creatively shut down. And so I didn't work for months. I mean, I could not get anything done. And the pandemic caught us with our house torn up mm. and uh, a toilet sitting in the middle of our basement. And I'm trying to work out of our bedroom with cardboard over the windows to keep the glare off my computer. And every time I did a Zoom, there's this like cardboard and this distinct like silence of the Lamb's Hannibal Lecter vibe. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it, my my OCD was not in a good place. Mm. So I didn't do anything for a lot of 2020. So by the time that I finally was able to kick it back into gear, we were able to tidy everything up and shop it around. So Okay, but you did do one brilliant thing during the beginning stages of the pandemic. Every night at eight o'clock, for how long you curled up after dinner and read your book, a chapter a night to whoever logged on. And it was like a Facebook Live, if I remember correctly. And I was on a bunch of those. And you'd spend a few minutes, hey, how y'all doing? You know, checking in and then go into story time. And it was story time for grownups. And I thought that was the most brilliant thing. It was very therapeutic for me. And I remember, you know, thinking at the beginning, maybe I should go on and read a little bit. And in my mind, I was thinking I should do this every single night. But then I thought my husband would think I was insane. <laughs> And I, I went to Brian and I was like, I kind of feel like I should do this. Maybe I should do it a few times. He goes, you should probably do it every night. And I was like, okay, then that's what we're going to do. And it was over 60 some consecutive nights. And then I started, you know, as, as things started kind of relaxing a little bit around lockdown and stuff, I started doing it every few days and then, you know, once a week, but I read three whole novels of mine during that time. So, and that whole group put together a cookbook. So it's up on my website. It's a free PDF. Everybody contributed because every now and then I'd be like, hey, here's the soup I'm making. Yeah. You know, whatever. <laughs> so it was a special time in a very weird period, you know. 
So do you think your experience um, in your imaginary world of Align Between prepared you to understand how much we would need <laughs> community and support and something to look forward to? Because that's what it was for me. I didn't show up all 60 plus days, but I jumped on quite a few times because it was like just a time when I could rest and relax and listen to your calm voice. And, you know, it was it was something to look forward to in the stress of those early days of lockdown. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know if or how the line between contributed to that, but I know that it was a really good, it was something I could do because I am a storyteller. It was something I could do to be with people during a time when we weren't supposed to be together. Mm -hmm. And it was a way that I could, I don't want to say help people, but it was something I could contribute. And so, and it really, it became this very special blessing and very special time because it kind of knit together this community of people that would come together and it, it was just really special. I think it was brilliant that, that you did that and so useful in so many ways. And then looking back, my marketing brain clicks in and I'm like, boy, you couldn't have planned a better marketing strategy because <laughs> I'm sure a lot of folks were like, oh, who is this person? And, and if they're not already a fan, they went and read your book or, or now they heard it in your voice. Um, I, I bought a couple of your books because you were reading from that. I hadn't, was, oh, yeah, was well, it Sheba <laughs> that you started with, I think? And uh, I, whichever book you started with, I was like, oh, I missed that one. Let me go back yeah. and grab that. Um, yeah. So it might've been the progeny. I, I think we, it might've been the progeny and then I might've read Firstborn and then I think I did Iscariot. Okay. Iscariot, maybe. Okay. Yeah. I think what whatever Nobody it was. Nobody wanted the line between, though, during the pandemic. <laughs> no, no. And and I had just read it, like, and was raving about it because I was so... <laughs> thankfully, I, I was late to the party, so I got to read them back to back, you know. I, I just binged the whole thing. I think I read both books in, like, a week's time because I couldn't put it down. Yeah. I, that makes my writer's heart feel so good. <laughs> it should. And that's another thing, though. So you've written a couple of is a duology is that the right word where it's a two book yeah. series is that yeah. intentional or did you just get to the end and go oh this isn't the end um no it was intentional and you know i've done a trilogy before too but marketing wise the sales of books and series they go like this and they step down mm -hmm. with, with each mm -hmm. book and so my goal was to write a first book and then write a compelling book that was possibly even faster paced than the first. And I really wanted to give the readers of the first book no excuse not to pick up the second one. So even with the progeny, and I got dinged for this by some people, but I ended the progeny on a cliffhanger mm -hmm. because I grew up in the age of who shot J DR. Yeah, exactly. We're the same Remember? age, right? Yeah. The whole summer t-shirts at Walgreens, who shot DR. Right. And, and we spent the whole summer speculating uh -huh. until the big, you know, premiere happened the next fall. And, and the world like stopped at 8 PM yeah. that night when they showed, you know, who did it. Right. So everybody, you know, so I like that. So the progeny ends with a cliffhanger and then immediately picks up right where it left off in the second book. So that is very intentional. Okay. Not everybody likes that. Some people, you know, of course, wait till the second book is out so they can speed right on through, which I totally understand because you know, I like to binge all my TV shows. I don't want to wait a week right. in between. So I get it. Well, the timing was perfect because I met you at BoucherCon and you handed me the arc for the second book. 
and I, I ran down and, to the bookstore in the basement of the convention and bought the first one so I could read oh, them in you. order. But you had assured me it would be fine to stand alone because I have gotten burned on so many series. Either the author like loses attention and doesn't finish a series or, oh. you know, something else comes up and it's 10 years later before you get the next installment or the publisher decides sales weren't good enough and they drop the series. So I'm really interested in the, the two book series because I don't think that's being done enough. I don't I don't see a lot of that. Um, I know that there are some I can't think of any off the top of my head, but um yeah it's it's just a protection in a way for the series i mean then if i really wanted to let's say um the progeny is in development right now for tv if it ever gets made and you know as one friend told me you can die of optimism right, but if right. it ever does get made <laughs> and if there's ever demand for another one i can still do another one or i can do more in that universe and so it's still there and it's still available but for the time being, it was it was a neat, tidy way to tell that story with just the two books. I loved it. Okay, <laughs> so we've been talking about that series. Let's talk about how you came up with that goodie bag, because <laughs> I just think that was brilliant. And I've still got the bag hanging behind me. I should have pulled it down to, to show. In fact, hold on. Yeah, I want to see the bag. <laughs> yeah, the save the bacon bag. Save the bacon. So when I first got this, I'm like, what on <laughs> earth? And then inside, I still have a couple of the things inside you put in. And when I saw it, you had one of those little safety blanket things in a packet. You had a flare. The little Mylar blankets. Yeah, you had a, a glow stick. Like military grade meal pack. You had some uh, vegan recipes. You had uh, just such an eclectic mix of <laughs> things. And I'm like, what the heck is this about? <laughs> and and so I got the bag before I started reading the book. And I dumped it all out in my hotel room. And I'm like, this makes no sense. It's such a disparate group of <laughs> items. What the heck? Oh, there was an, a quarantine sticker, which ended up on my previous laptop. I covered the lid with stickers. All these things. But the fun was, as I'm reading the book, I'm going, oh, yeah. that's why that's in there. Oh, that's why that's in there. And it was just such a fun thing. So I'm guessing that everybody got the goodie bag. So how did you use that? And follow up questions already. Not only how did you use it and who got it, but I'm guessing those were expensive to put together. Was it worth the cost? Did you feel like the investment was returned in book sales or promotion? How did that all work? Yeah, so... I got the idea because from bookstagram, basically. So I'm looking okay. at Instagram. I'm looking at the way that people are um, displaying books with items that kind of go with the book. I've seen swag bags before that have some goodies like, you know, bookmarks and, you know, maybe a pen or mm -hmm. sometimes even a t-shirt or whatever. And for me, this was just a really fun way to say, what can I equip, you know, some of these book influencers with? And, and I spent days and weeks just emailing them saying, hey, I have a new book coming out. Can I send you a copy? Uh, and I did this for The Line Between and A Single Light. The line between, by the way, so save the bacon, save the world. The bacon plays into the storyline because the disease. Right. I wasn't going to give that away. No spoilers. <laughs> but also, you know, my my readers know I have a love affair with bacon. And so okay. it's not uncommon for them to bring me sometimes like bacon 
themed gifts. And so it's it was kind of a behind the scenes joke with my readers, you know, who know I love bacon. And I'm vegan. So when I walked in the house with this bag, my husband's like, wait, what What, what happened to you at that conference? <laughs> yeah. So sorry, vegans everywhere. Um, and I understand the vegan bacon is avocado, which I also love. So I had a vegan tell me that and I'm like, hey, I'm all for avocados. Right, right. We can make it work. Yeah, that we can make it work. And also Morningstar Farms has a really good vegan yes. bacon that I have eaten. Even though I'm a meat yes. eater, I still eat vegan food because I like it. So, but anyway, I, I wanted to give the bookstagram community that the ones that chose to take my book and read it and possibly review it and feature it. I wanted to give them some fun things. So that's what happened. And it's funny because when the pandemic happened and, you know, you couldn't find like hand sanitizer, masks, mm-hmm. all this stuff. We had masks because we'd been throwing surgical masks in a lot of the books. Yeah. yeah. And so we just happened to have some left over, but it was very weird. But we had a, a really great time doing that with um, that book and the sequel. Yeah. Vegan recipes. I, I mentioned this vegan egg salad that has chickpeas in it instead of eggs at the beginning right. of the book. So we put the recipe in there, which is actually very tasty. I actually made it and it was very good. <laughs> it is very good. I've had it. Yeah. It was fun. Was it worth it? I don't know. It was just such a different concept. It was expensive and mailing is expensive and you get the tote bags made. I mean, it was fun for me to curate all this random stuff. It's really hard to measure. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I could put a measurement on it, but the fact that it was fun, the fact that I did get quite a lot of good bookstagram coverage, it was super helpful. So did it add up to the dollars I spent? I don't know. Okay, so you are traditionally published by Howard Books, which is an imprint out of... Simon & Schuster. Okay, so you just said that you came up with this idea and this was something you did. How much of the marketing for your books does Howard Books do for you or are you on your own in that? I did it all. Um, So what happened is I had a contract and Howard Books did a fun little book box for the progeny and firstborn. Uh, I think it was mostly around Firstborn when Firstborn came out. But then that imprint, it it got shifted to the New York office. The main Howard office uh, in Nashville was closed. And so suddenly I'm marketing on my own without the publicist that I knew or the marketing people that were there that were so good. And the office in New York, you know, they acquire all of these Howard authors who they don't know that much about, you know, and all of a sudden here we are. And um and so I'm on my own. So that's me. And I remember that same Bashakan that we went to, I had a poster there mm-hmm. for a single light. And one of my friends was like, wow, your publisher's doing so much for you. And I was like, oh, hon, <laughs> I did that. <laughs> I paid for that. I, I had that one printed and, you know, and it was an expensive year. I'm not going to lie. But the book made great sales, right? <laughs> it, it did really well. Um, it sold well. The line between ended up in Target. I've never had two books. I mean, those two go together. I've never had any book of mine that was that won as many awards as those two books won. Right. Goodreads Reader's Choice. I think that's really impressive because these are serious readers who vote for the books. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not a publisher pushed thing or a right. 
gamified. The more I'm learning, not to take away from anybody who gets best-selling status on any platform, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of strategy and gamification to get mm -hmm. some of those awards. And the Goodreads reader's choice, I think, is really, you know, your ideal audience and who you're writing for. So when they recognize you, that's got to be a huge, huge thing. Good. That was huge. The Virginia Library People's Choice Awards, it was nominated for that one. And it was able to be nominated for that because I was oh. born in Virginia. So I don't live there, but I'm, I'm from Virginia. So they claim you as their own. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> but I... Uh, and I'm, I'm tired thinking back to those. Two. <laughs> that was a lot, you know, and thank goodness for my super assistant, Cindy. And we call her Asylum Warden Cindy. <laughs> and she's the one who did all the shipping. She's the one who boxed everything up. She's the one who, you know, all this random stuff got shipped to her house. So if not for her, I don't know how this would have worked. Shout out to all those unsung heroes. And right. uh, I have Jolyn behind the scenes. I'm pointing like she's here. She's not here. <laughs> but I call her my XO because, you know, she keeps me on track. And we both live with some chronic illness stuff. Fortunately, we're usually on on the days the other one's off kind of thing. Um, so we can keep things going. But yeah, a lot of people that it looks like they're doing all the things, they do have help. And and oh. I just want to say that for the aspiring authors out there who are trying to do it all, you cannot do it all. You can't. You've got to find even just a good friend, even mm -hmm. just a good friend, because at some point, I remember back when I would be shipping my packaging, my books that people bought signed copies of or whatnot, I'd make my midnight run to the post office where thankfully there's a kiosk so you don't have to interact with yes. humans and you can go when everybody else is asleep. But I couldn't do it right now. So thank goodness for her. Yeah. And even starting out, I bartered a lot of services. Um, because so important. Yeah. yeah, you've got to figure out what what you do that nobody else can do. And writing the crappy first draft is something sadly only <laughs> you can do because I'm right there with you. If I could skip that part of the process and go straight to editing and revision, I'd be so much happier. I oh, love the plotting. I love the research. I love the planning. Writing that first draft is a killer. <laughs> It is a killer. Every now and then it's like, okay, oh, oh yeah, it feels so good. But then the rest of the time it's like. <laughs> it's a lot like going to the gym for me. You know, I always oh. feel good when I have done it, but yes. actually getting dressed and getting to the gym, that's hard work. <laughs> you know what? And that's a really good point because the hardest part is getting yourself there. And I find for me, the hardest part is getting myself upstairs to my desk to, to sit down in my chair. Mm -hmm. If I can do that, half the battle's done. Honestly, I, if I can stay off social media and you know, all the other things. 100% agree. 100%. Okay. So you've had Howard Books for all of your published books? All of my backlist. Uh, I did recently get rights back to my first two books, Demon and Haba. So I will be re-releasing those on my own. Okay. With new art and everything. I'm really excited about that because I've never released any of my own books by myself. So I'm excited to do that and get to push all the buttons myself. And then the Long March Home is coming from Ravel, okay. which is a publisher out of Michigan. Yeah. Okay. So how have you been able to sell 
Howard Books on the idea that you write medical thrillers, Christian mystery and suspense, supernatural thrillers, epic fantasy, literary fiction, historical fiction. I mean, you really check a lot of boxes. <laughs> and I'm thinking as a marketer, how difficult would that be to find your ideal audience? Yeah, um, a couple things go into that. One, um, I think it's really important to be able to convincingly pitch your ideas, not just to an agent, but not just to a publisher the first time, but to your team, like over and over. Because if you have the same team and you have more than one book there, and I've had several contracts with Howard Books at Simon & Schuster, I mean, I've literally gone to New York on my own dime when I had uh, the two books left and I pitched what became the line between in a single light in person. Mm. And so you're constantly selling yourself and the ability to go and say, here's why this idea would be cool. Or in that case, you know, I had 10 ideas. Here's 10 great ideas, you know, and they were like, wow, I really kind of like that weird pandemic cult girl one, you know, so to be able to sell that over and over. So you sold the idea before you wrote the book? Yes. So I had a contract. Oh, cool. Uh, that particular contract had four books in it. The first two turned into the progeny and firstborn. I had two left. So I went to New York and I said, okay, how about this? Those were the ones I was fulfilling when Marcus was calling me about the long march home. Okay. What's the consistent line between all the stories? So they're obviously not all the same genre, but is there a theme or a trope that runs through that ties them together and brings your audience in? There's whether it's overt or not. And I prefer that it's not though when you're writing biblical fiction, it's often overt. There is some kind of redemption story or a redemption theme or something like that in there. I'm fortunate enough to have readers who will basically follow me to the next book, even if it's something different, mm -hmm. maybe only out of curiosity, but, um, you know, and that's what, that's something I, I really tried to relay that, you know, these are really intrepid readers and they'll never agree. You know, if you ask them what book of mine they like the best, they'll never agree because some like the first early ones better mm -hmm. and some like the thrillers better, but I'm fortunate enough to, to have very loyal readers. And so I think that's important. And I think your readers have a fair expectation that their thoughts are going to be challenged as well as their imaginations. But at the same time, not only that story of redemption comes through, but I was thrilled seeing how you could take such a hard topic and a scary situation, and it was scary, but you didn't resort to the foul language. You didn't resort to the gratuitous sex or violence that so easily could have been justified in those stories. So I kind of feel like, again, you are listed as a Christian author. So that's something we look for. But so many times I don't read Christian authors anymore because they're so saccharine sweet and mm -hmm. it's not real life and your stories aren't that way. Mm -hmm. So I would follow and read anything you put out. I absolutely <laughs> would. But I know as a marketer, you know, trying to put you in a certain niche, that's got to be crazy thing. So I imagine you got some pushback. So it's fascinating that you said you pitched the idea before you actually wrote the book. Yeah, because I, I really needed their buy-in. You know, this is the kind of thing that does drive agents crazy because they really like category. And, mm -hmm. and if you're not staying in the category, you know, they really like you to stay in, if not one, then two, maybe not more than that. Yeah, I don't know how I'm going to deal with that in the future. <laughs> 
<laughs> so is there one that you prefer or are you ready to check out a new genre completely? What's your next project looking like? Uh, my next project is a medieval thriller. <laughs> so, is it really? Thriller history, put them together. <laughs> oh, Tosca. <laughs> I am. Uh, okay. So I am obviously not a published author. I write more as a hobby and to make my inner creative happy and to stay in touch with my community. But the thing is, I'm trying my hand at an epic fantasy for the first time. I have never done that. I have been so pretty stayed in the suspense and mystery genre. It doesn't matter what I set out to write. There's going to be a dead body before I get 25% through the draft. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but <laughs> yeah, so this is going to be real interesting. So I'm thrilled to see how you do it. And I'm in the middle of reading Brandon Sanderson's The Way of the Kings right now, mm -hmm. which again, I understand that's an ongoing thing, but he also broke it down. He created that universe and then broke it down into just a few books for each mm -hmm. one. So you don't feel like you've got, you know, 20 books to read. You haven't entered this whole like giant machine. Mm -hmm. There's, yeah, there's a that. safe exit ramp, you know, it. right, point. right. He went to my high school. Oh, really? Here in, in Nebraska. <laughs> After me. He's younger okay. than me. <laughs> okay. How interesting. Yeah. Lincoln East. Yep. <laughs> okay. So most of your books do have that thriller line in them. You know, a little, I mean, and here's the hard thing. When you've written about, say, Judas Iscariot, most people know how his story ends. Right. So the challenge is always, how do you make this fresh? And how do you keep people turning pages when, you know, they feel like they know him already? Well, then you have to highlight other aspects of the character, right? But with a thriller, you know, you're just flat out trying to keep people turning pages. And that is my goal. My goal is to keep someone glued to the book. And anytime somebody says, I read this in one sitting, or I read this in a day, or you know, I, I have two feelings at once. The first is yes. And I put a little notch in my belt. And the second is it took me this long to write that book and you just devoured it in a gulp. You know, it's like Thanksgiving dinner. You spent all day I cooking. was just thinking of that. I get so annoyed. 15 I... minutes later, like after people sit down 15 minutes, like it's gone. And I'm still stuck in the kitchen for an hour cleaning up after That's it. right. <laughs> So it's, it's always a little bittersweet, but that is my goal. I, I want to keep readers reading late when they uh -huh. should have gone to bed because that's what readers like. They mm -hmm. secretly want to do that. I, I'm a reader too. I secretly want a book so good that I'm going to be sleepless the next day. So. And that's huge. I hear writers saying, oh, I don't read when I'm writing. And I'm thinking mm -hmm. that just doesn't compute in my head. I'm mm -hmm. reading everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, yep. so we have so many takeaways from this. Um, <sighs> you you just gave us so many ideas. What is one word of wisdom that you would give to another author who's maybe starting out, maybe leveling up, maybe looking for their first agent, maybe trying to figure out how to work with a new agent? What have you learned in your 13 years of publishing and many more years of writing that you could distill? <laughs> I know that's a huge question. You know, the, the first biggest one is never give up. If that's what you really feel is your thing, a hundred thousand things will come to discourage you and try to cut you down. And there's changes in the publishing industry all the time. Things will happen. Your book won't get the marketing. You won't get the budget. Your whatever it is, you know, just don't ever give up because there will always be barriers, but you need to have full faith in what you're doing. So that's, that's number one. And you need to know why you're doing it and that will see you through. So know your why. But the other thing is this, and it took me a while to figure this out. You need to know what your service to your readers is. 
And it took me a long time to figure that out because I'm selling a product that I want people to buy. But how am I being of service in that? Because I'm selling stories and lies, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But my service is that I take people away from the hard things of life for a few hours at a time. That is my service. I genuinely care about my readers. I pray for my readers. I spend time with my readers. And so, and I want to give them what they want, which is a great story that will keep them up at night. So that's my goal. Excellent. And I can't think of a lovelier place to end, but I have to ask you three questions. Okay. Uh oh. My, my three questions I ask everybody at the close Are you a tea drinker? If so, what's your favorite tea? <laughs> I am a tea drinker. Um, I love good Korean ginseng, like real ginseng. I also love blueberry tea and peach tea. Oh, mm-hmm. very interesting. I haven't tried a peach tea lately. It smells delicious. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's springtime, so that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. Favorite flower or plant? And you're a farm wife, so I imagine you've got a lovely garden. I No. I no? <laughs> we tried and failed. Um, you know what? My favorite flower are the little Japanese lanterns. And it's so funny because I saw something like that growing out here near where my husband farms. And it was a similar kind of thing with the little puffy little lantern things. Uh-huh. And he's like, that's a weed. And I'm like, I don't care. It looks like the thing I like. So, <laughs> But I love those and I love orchids. Orchids. So we were just at a couple of weeks ago, the world of orchids display at the Fort Worth Botanic Garden. And they also have a Japanese garden. And I saw something very similar to what you're describing. Mm -hmm. So if you come to Fort Worth, got to check that out. Okay. Hardest question of all. And you can't say one of your own. Okay. What's your favorite book? Uh. This is how I get all my book recommendations. (laughs) You know, one of the books that I go back to over and over and that inspired me in in my writing of Hava, the story of Eve, was another biblical book. And it was it's called The Red Tent. It's by Anita Diamant. And she took one character, very, very obscure character in the Old Testament, um, Dina, who was the daughter of I think she was the daughter of Leah, if I remember. I need to go back and look. Yeah, it was Leah's daughter. Daughter of Leah. Okay, so and blew her whole story out into a whole novel. And the language is just sumptuous and beautiful. And and it's an amazing book. It's not a newer book. It's like been out for 20 years or something like that. But um, it's, it's inspiring to me as a writer. I will have to look that up. Very yeah, cool. Tosca Lee, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your experience and expertise with the authorpreneur community. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thanks for listening today. Check out authorpreneursunleashed.com forward slash podcast for resources, show notes, tips, and more. Make sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to subscribe to the Unleashing newsletter. Next episode, Catherine visits with paranormal romance author and writing instructor Amanda Arista to discuss strategies for developing and creating subplots. Discover why subplots are essential to your writing career.